are those who, who just pour themselves into this community while they're in college, and they really do so much more than what they're even asked. One of those individuals is Ben Palmer. And so I'm going to invite Ben to come forward. Ben, he's got his own fan club. That's awesome. Ben has been one of those uh, students, Iowa student, who has just invested himself so much in this community, uh, this Brookhaven community, and we're so thankful for that, Ben. And uh, we, we, we have a lot of uh, great practicum students, uh, but Ben is one of those, and I've told, told him this before, uh, you just, it's hard to get better than Ben. He is just uh, uh, such a godly man and um, so passionate about following Christ. He's also the Iowa student body chaplain. And so he has uh, that influence and that influence on, the camp, on, the, on our community. And uh, one of the things I got to thinking several, um, that's been about five or six months ago, probably, actually. I don't know how long it's been. I said, Brookhaven talks a lot about being a uh, community where we invest in merging leaders. But we need to back that up with how we do things. And I said, Ben, would you be willing to speak in our AM worship venue and uh, just share God's word with us today, and, and he agreed. And so uh, we're honored that you're, you're sharing God's word with, with us today, Ben. And before you begin, I would just like to start with prayer. God, thank you so much for Ben, for his love for you, uh, the call that you have on his life, the way that you have gifted him in so many ways. And so, God, I thank you for that. I thank you that he is part of the, the Brookhaven community. And we thank you for his investment in us. Uh, God, it's so good to have him part of our community, and um, and so we pray that you'll bless him this moment, that you will anoint him, that your spirit will fall fresh upon him, and that they will not just be his words that, that are spoken, but they will be divine words from you. God, may our hearts be open to what you're going to say to us today through Ben. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. One of the blessings of having attended this church for the last three years is that I get to attend Dave Tippy's Sunday school class in between services. And it's a great class um, for a lot of reasons. Awesome people, awesome teaching, um, and I love it. I've had the privilege of getting to know a lot of the members of the class um, and learning about God's Word alongside them. And one of the things that Dave does with the class is that he will ask everyone to raise their hands. And we're going to take a page out of Dave's playbook today, and I'm going to ask everybody here to raise their hands. And then what Dave does is he asks a question that he already knows the answer to. And so I ask, how many of us have ever had definite or unrealistic expectations and then been let down when they weren't met? Okay, you can put your hands down. Maybe we expected a promotion at work and it, it didn't, didn't come through. Maybe we expected our roommates to do the dishes four days ago. Uh, maybe we expected uh, a grade on a paper that we didn't get or our food at the restaurant to be better than it actually was. And all of these different expectations that are not met have the potential to ruin our day, ruin our week, make our relationships difficult. But usually, after a little while, we get over them. 
It's either not that big of a deal. But what do we do when it's Jesus who doesn't meet our expectations? What do we do when we don't get the answer to a prayer that we were hoping for? When we read in the Bible a commandment that is difficult, that doesn't quite jive with the way we think, what do we do when Jesus does not meet our expectations? In Matthew chapter 27, we have an example of Jesus not meeting the expectations of Pilate and of the Jewish crowd he stands before. He does not meet their expectations because they expect the wrong thing. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be picking up in verse 11. And while you do so, I'm just going to walk through some of the events that are leading up to this passage of Scripture. As we've been talking about in church the past few weeks, Jesus is now in the midst of what we call Passion Week. It begins on Palm Sunday with Jesus riding in on the back of a donkey and the crowds gathering, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Throughout the week, he teaches and he heals. He makes things right and people flock to him. They wonder at him. Then on Thursday night, things change. One of Jesus' friends... Judas betrays him into the hands of the Jewish leaders. And they, in turn, bring Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate for a trial. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. You see, in a Roman court of law, Guilt or innocence is not determined by evidence or by eyewitnesses or anything like that that we see today. Roman court is based on argument. Two parties, a prosecutor and a defendant, come before a judge and present their case in the best rhetorical way they know. One side says, this person did this thing, here's why it's wrong, all these reasons, almost like a sermon against that person. And then the defendants will do the same in their own defense. They will either explain why this person misunderstands what they did or justify their own actions or claim that that person isn't even telling the truth. And then the judge will determine between the two who is, who is right and who is wrong. And so, when Jesus gives Pilate no answer... He does something that is unheard of. He presents Pilate with a situation for which there is no judicial precedent whatsoever. 
Pilate is amazed that this seemingly innocent man says nothing in his own defense. Jesus forces Pilate to make a difficult decision. Rather than laying it all out there and explaining the entire situation and defending himself against the accusations of his enemies, Jesus gives no answer. So while Pilate expects a defense, Pilate expects things to be easy, Jesus makes him make a difficult decision. But rather than committing to a difficult decision, Pilate has another idea. Look in verses 15 through 18. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate takes advantage of this tradition so that he can avoid responsibility for making a decision. Rather than make a determination about Jesus' innocence or guilt, he simply brings Jesus before the crowd and lets them decide. He thinks in this way he will be able to not only avoid the responsibility of making a decision, but he will also gain popularity with the people he's ruling over. It's, it's the perfect solution, really. He, he thinks there's no way this can go wrong. Surely they will choose a controversial rabbi whom the people love over this murderous, treacherous revolutionary. Couldn't go wrong. Until it does. Pilate gets an answer he doesn't expect. Verses 20 through 24. Now, chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to destroy Jesus. The governor asked again, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, and what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. When I first read this passage, I wondered what could possibly have made this crowd, whose friends and neighbors and possibly even they themselves were there when Jesus came in riding on the donkey, that uttered the very words, Hosanna in the highest, that saw Jesus heal and teach, what could have happened that made these people change their minds? 
I looked back. I looked back five chapters. I looked back six chapters. And every time Jesus says something, the crowds flocked to him. They marveled. He healed them. Now, the Jewish leaders weren't very happy about this, but the common people seems to love Jesus. So what happens? It says in verse 20, chief priests and elders persuaded them. What did they say? What argument could they possibly have came up with that caused this change of perspective? Maybe they said, Jesus is weak. He's standing up there in chains, submitting to the Romans. If he were truly the king or the Messiah, he would be casting off those chains and destroying the Roman oppressors. Maybe they say, Jesus is a blasphemer. He's wrong. If Jesus gets his way, we will have to change everything. Everything about our lives will be different unless we do something about Jesus. The reality is, we don't know what they said. But whatever they said, it worked. The crowd was convinced to choose Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And Pilate now is in a worse place than when he began. His plan has backfired. In an attempt to avoid making a decision, he has made the decision that much more difficult for himself. You see, he has now let the crowd determine what he will do. And the crowd is calling for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate doesn't think this is the right course of action. But rather than go with what he knows is right, he chooses convenience over the truth. Ending the public relations nightmare that is on his hands, avoiding the riot, avoiding the difficulty or the challenge of it all, Pilate chooses the easy way out. Let them have their way. Literally washing his hands of Jesus and saying, I will have nothing to do with this. Do whatever you want. So why doesn't Jesus meet these people's expectations? Why not give Pilate an answer and make life easy for him? Why not cast off his chains, destroy the Romans? Why not conform to the Jewish status quo of the time? Jesus doesn't meet their expectations because in order to accomplish their salvation, he has to be something different. He has to be true to who he is. True to the mission given to him by the Father. True to what is said about him in here. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that is before its shearer's silence. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't come 
at first as a conquering king. He didn't come for the purposes of beating Jewish leaders in debate. He came to sacrifice himself for the sake of the very people who were calling for his crucifixion. He fulfills the words of Isaiah. He doesn't defend himself. He allows himself to be crucified, completely disregarding the expectations of everybody there, so that he could do something better. And I wonder if at times our expectations of Jesus are like those of Pilate or of the crowd. Do we expect Jesus to operate on human terms and in line with human logic? To make things easy or convenient all the time? When we don't get the answer we want or we are confronted with a difficult decision, when that neighbor or coworker who seems impossible to love becomes someone we're called to love, when that trial or adversity faces and the end does not seem to be in sight, do we trust that Jesus is who he says he is? Or do we distance ourselves like Pilate? Or shake our fists and condemn him like the crowd? When we trust that Jesus is who he says he is in his word, We're reminded that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that everything that happens, He still works on our behalf for our good and our salvation. When Jesus doesn't meet our limited human expectations, we can be assured. We can have confidence and hope that He is who He says He is in here. That He is faithful. That He is our friend. That He doesn't do things our way, and thank God for that. And it's hard. It's challenging and intimidating and confusing and sometimes downright disappointing. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. When he's silent. When he asks us to let go of control. When he asks us to sacrifice or to confess our sins and trust in him for our salvation rather than ourselves. To trust in his ways rather than in our ways. But when we do it, we are reminded that he sees the big picture and we don't. That he has a plan for salvation and for good that we cannot even begin to imagine the fullness of. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, do we bring our burdens to him? Do we run to him? Do we look to his word to find out what we can expect? Or do we distance ourselves? Or do we condemn him? Or do we trust him? What will we do with Jesus 
was called the Christ. So as we close out today, what we're going to do is have a time of reflection. Some members of the band are going to come up and play, and we are going to hear a little bit more from God's Word about who we can trust Jesus to be. And during this time, I encourage you to take a posture of prayer and ask God what expectations He wants to throw out and what truths you can hold on to from His Word. What will you do with Jesus who is called 